With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe-Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lock-away channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. I first fell for Valeria Luiselli on the pages of her recent novel, Lost Children Archives. And I am not alone in recognizing her gifts. Valeria has won a MacArthur Genius Award, two LA Time Book Prizes, and an American Book Award. She is a force. I fell for her again during our intimate conversation where she liberated me from focusing on the plot of my life, gave me permission to have no fixed sense of self, and celebrated those of us who observe and write in order to connect to the world around us. Valeria, I've been after you for the better part of a year, so thank you for finally acquiescing and making this work. I know you were busy. <laughs> thank you so much for inviting me. You were born in Mexico City. You two, you began moving all around the world, first to Madison, Wisconsin, which is... Weird. Yeah, I mean, especially compared to Costa Rica, Korea, finally South Africa. Some people who move around a lot as kids say either that that allows them to be really forthcoming and make friends really easily. And I think for some people, it forces them to recede into themselves. Which was it for you? I think the latter. But um, more than more than in that dichotomy, I think I would say that moving around a lot forced me to, to become a good observer, mm-hmm. right? Because when you move around a lot, especially as a kid, you have to understand the new codes of every... Uh, society that you come into, and it's a matter of survival, understanding those codes well. And so I, m- more than just recede, I think I, I, I placed myself in, in, in the position of observer. And often in the position of observer uh, that could go by a little bit unnoticed, if if that's what I needed. And I think that's still the space from which I 
right today? I think the sort of funny thing about our generation is that the one common thread is that so many of us identify as insider-outsiders, that in some way we have traversed different spaces where we have needed to be able to do that type of observation and Mm. shape-shifting. And one of the things that I am grappling with now in my 30s is that I feel that I spent so much of my youth doing what you just said that I feel that I've arrived at my 30s without necessarily an entirely clear sense of who I am Mm. because I've spent so much of my time shape-shifting. But that's a good thing, right? I mean, that's a way of of maintaining some kind of freedom, right? Mm -hmm. In in a moment and in a society in which everything pushes for us to become a very fixed identity. And in a country like the U.S. where where the notion of minority is, is, is exists and is, is such an important part of cultural discourse. Belonging to any group that is considered uh, widely as a minority is also a way to be boxed into a niche and an identity from which there's difficult, difficult freedom, right? You have to work hard to, to not lose your creative freedom if you are placed inside an identity. So not knowing and allowing identity to, to continue to flow and change, I think, is really important. We're, what, like two and a half minutes in, and I feel like you've already given me a great gift. Because <laughs> I have been, I've been carrying that <laughs> around a, as that, a weight. That's all I had. <laughs> Thank you. All right, and that was wonderful. Thank you for joining us. Um, so what you were doing all of that moving around because your dad was a diplomat? Not all the time. Yeah, that's kind of what someone printed one day. And now it's become your myth. And now it's the only thing. And it kind of, I love my father, but it kind of annoys me that my life is explained through him (laughs) um, because I also had a mother. More sympathetic I could not be. (laughs) Go ahead. We moved around for different reasons, sometimes because either my father or mother worked in NGOs. And then, yes, for a period in my life, for six years really of my life, he was a diplomat. Um, First in South Korea which was in the in the in the 1980s which was when i was there um a country that felt very remote from mexico uh, we were there for 3 years and then in south africa right after the 1994 elections moment. it was it was the right moments i think had your parents explained apartheid uh yeah of, of course and and a lot and we i come from a family um that is very political and in which politics is, has always been discussed passionately. Is there something that's getting in the way of your happiness or that's preventing you from achieving your goals? I have found that talking with someone can make a big difference, but sometimes the logistics, like finding the right person and the time to connect, make things complicated. BetterHelp Online Counseling connects you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp's licensed professional counselors specialize in everything from depression to relationships to complicated family dynamics, self-esteem, grief. You get it. And if you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time. They even have financial aid for those who qualify. Best of all, it's an affordable option. Latina to Latina listeners get 10% off your first month with the discount code LATINA. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash Latina. Fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor. That's betterhelp.com slash Latina. 
what was it like then, several years later, to return to Mexico as a teen? I, I always had um, a kind of paradise lost relationship with mm. Mexico. Um, it was a, a homeland where I hadn't grown up and which I mm. um, idealized. And I, I just thought everything, everything about it was so much better than any other place in the world. But then you go to school in India. Yeah, I never quite. I every time I've moved back to Mexico, I I realize that I am more a foreigner there than ever and anywhere mm-hmm. else, and I can't ever quite put roots down. Even though my heart is very much rooted in 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 Mexico, um, it's like I never learned to live in the country that was my own. I just don't know how to do that. I know how to be a foreigner fully, but not that other foreigner, which is to be a foreigner in your homeland. So yeah, a little after I arrived in Mexico, I asked for a scholarship and um, I was sent to India to a boarding school on this fellowship, um, this group of schools, wonderful group of schools called United World Colleges. And that's where I finished high school in in Pune, near Pune. But then, as as to put an exclamation point on the point you were just making, you returned to Mexico to, in your own words, become Mexican. I really wanted to be a Chilanga again. So, <laughs> and I really wanted to study in UNAM. It was also a, a, a family thing. You know, my sisters had gone to UNAM, and my father had gone to UNAM, and I and I wanted to to be in that university. It is easy, given your success now to imagine that your career has been nonstop momentum. But your first book, I believe it was, was rejected by several publishers. Several is little. (laughs) (laughs) By everyone. (laughs) What kept you writing? Well, it's the only thing I know how to do. And it's the only thing that I cannot not do and and remain sane. I mean, that was a really contrived way of putting it. <laughs> it's very clear to me that if I'm not writing, I, I feel like I'm not living. So I cannot let more than a few days pass without writing something because then life starts to feel to me like a, just like a repetition of calendar days. It's the only way in which I know how to observe and therefore how to connect how to connect to others, how to connect to the world around me, how to connect to the changing of the seasons, how to connect to to the chaos of my experience and make sense of it. So I I cannot not do it. Did you always know that about yourself or was there a moment where you found that out to be true about yourself? You know, I mean, hindsight really rearranges things. So I'm not sure, but if if I look back, it is clear to me that I was from a very early age, finding in the space of writing a space in which to be. Mm. Um, so I remember playing at writing, where like I would just take a notebook before I knew how to write words and scribble until the notebook was finished. And I think that even now, when I find myself in a situation in which I feel foreign or disconnected or derooted, deracinated. What I do, what I know how to do, is to take out a notebook and put my pen 
down on it and I immediately feel, and this is going to sound a bit esoteric, but I immediately feel like a rootedness in just that action. So I think I knew early on, or maybe I, I discovered early on something that I understood later, much later. You spend about 10 years reworking sidewalks, is that right? I started writing sidewalks when I was in my early 20s, maybe 20 or 21. But I had no idea that I was writing a book. I was mm. just writing stuff. And then eventually I understood that that I was writing maybe essays, but they were like a series of essays, and they were all about literary urbanism and a coming-of-age essay somehow. And, and um, it took me five years or so to write that tiny book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I was learning how to write through writing it. Um, but it, yeah, it wasn't really 10 years. It was about, it was about five years or so. Still a sizable amount of time. I mean, <laughs> yeah. have you For been, a al- book that's <laughs> yes, <it is laughs> have you been allowed to take that much time with any project since? Oh, that's as much time as I usually take. We talked with, um, Christy Habegger, who was the, um, founder of Latina Magazine, and she'd gone on to become a film producer and then an agent at CAA. And she talks a lot about professional metabolism and how you have to know what sort of timeline you enjoy working on, that for some people five years is a lifetime and they would lose interest. Mm. And then for other people, that is exactly the right amount of time. I love that notion of of metabolism. Absolutely. I think it's true. And for me, I've discovered with time, it's really important to spend a lot of time and have a lot of patience at the beginning of the projects that I undertake. I need to read a lot. I need to see a lot of concerts and exhibitions and write notes. And I and I need to just spend time uh, thinking and not writing on the computer and just allowing things to grow very slowly and then after a year or two of doing that, if I am still, if I am still enthusiastic, and the word really is enthusiastic about the questions that I'm pursuing, then I know that, that I, I can continue. So because I am both captivated by that idea, but also a pragmatist, how do you pay the bills while you're waiting for those ideas to hatch? I teach and I write articles um, here and there, and um, I was very lucky to receive a MacArthur grant. You're among the many geniuses we have. <laughs> so that it definitely has helped. Because I think if you don't have that, if you don't sort of have that piece tucked away, then the anxiety mm. and the push to create something for the purpose mm-hmm. of being able to be paid for that work mm. becomes the driving motivation. Which is perfectly fine too, yeah. right? But I think trying to make a living or simply exploring the human soul are, are equally valid motivations. And, it's, and there is an anxiety always, whatever the drive, there's an anxiety of not being able to do it of, of, or of, do, of producing something meaningless, of not uh, being able to, to reach deep enough into oneself to actually produce something that's of any worth. It's, and we have to work with that fear, right? And not against it. I think we have to work with fear. Was that particularly true for you when you were writing um, Tell Me How It Ends or when you were writing Lost Children Archives? Because 
to some extent, it is someone else's story. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, tell me how it ends. Has a lot of your story. Yeah, I mean, my story is rather irrelevant in it. It's it's important that it's there. It was for me because it was important for me um, that the reader knew where I was standing as mm-hmm. a as a narrative voice in in that in the exhibition and that d- way of denouncing what was happening in the immigration courts, right? Which for someone who hasn't read is from the vantage point of someone who will obtain legal status exactly. and have a green card. Exactly. So it is it is interrogating that question of what it means to be an immigrant and what it means to have legal status and the privilege that comes with Absolutely. the differentiation. And I think it's really important to 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 be transparent about the place from which you write and the way that that place determines your relationship to that which you write about. I am a member of the Hispanic community, of the Latino community, but I am a member who came here by plane and not by foot and with a student visa and who who has enormous privilege and therefore also enormous responsibility Mm -hmm. toward my community. In this discussion about appropriation and... Is uh, are we allowed to write about this or that? I I personally think that writers should have the freedom, not only the freedom but the responsibility to write about others and otherness and go beyond themselves. That is my stance. But I think that it has to be done sensibly and with 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 common sense and with intelligence and with transparency as well uh, about the place that that you that your gaze occupies. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads. What did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blowout barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Pamper Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size 8. And now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important, and it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? (laughs) They do look cute, though. Bringing cheer. M&M's for all fun kind. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events.
Hey, today I want to tell you about a new podcast I am loving. It's called Dear Young Rocker. Remember the 14-year-old version of you? Awkward, insecure, the weirdo in you, fiercely independent but longing to connect? In this narrative podcast, join Hell's Chelsea Urson as she relives her teen years, struggling to feel cool enough to exist and finding a home in music. Each episode dives deep into teen Chelsea's journal entries as she navigates school, family, relationships, and joining her first band. And occasionally, adult Chelsea chimes in with advice for her younger self. At the same time that it offers a poignant, funny look at what being a teenager is like, Dear Young Rocker also creates honest dialogue around the issues of body image, gender power dynamics, and mental health. And it shines a spotlight on the way those are magnified during our teen years. Both of the works that we're talking about come out of your experience translating for Central American migrant children. What prompted you to take on that role as a translator? Well, I I started translating in court, not for literary reasons, but Mm -hmm. because I I had finally understood after after the the mess and the chaos that the media created around the situation. I had finally understood that that what what really was happening was that the Obama administration had declared all children coming in from Central America as part of a priority docket in court, and that that meant that now they only had, as previously they had an entire year to find a lawyer that would defend them from deportation, but now they only had 21 days. So there was a national emergency, but the emergency was getting these kids' representation, get, getting them lawyers. This is 2014, 2015? This is 2014, the summer of 2014. The, the surge was, the highest surge, the one, the one that, that um, was, I guess, the catalyst for, for what was conceived as an immigration crisis, but it was called an immigration crisis from an institutional point of view and not from the point of view of children. Um, that surge happened really between October 2013 and June 2014, about 60,000 children had come in alone, undocumented, and seeking asylum or other other visas. And what was needed were people interviewing kids to screen them in court. And once once they had been interviewed, uh, getting that testimony in, into English and into the hands of a lawyer who might decide to take on uh, that story as a case to represent. So I became involved in that capacity as as someone who could translate from Spanish to English and who could help find lawyers for all these children. I think it is one of those things you can read about and then you can actually do and see and bear witness to, and it is fundamentally different when you are that close to it and when it's not numbers and, and faceless people, but people who you know. Yeah. Well, that's the reason I wrote Tell Me How It Ends, basically. And it was written in the spirit of denouncing what I was seeing in court, as you say, from a very short distance. And in a moment in America in which most people were, um, I guess, in a kind of voluntary ignorance about the atrocities happening under the Obama administration, right? Because unfortunately, when we have a Democrat in office, um, we feel like we can go to sleep for a while, but it's not the case, right? So I wanted to write a book that would denounce what was happening, what 
the Obama administration, knowingly or not, I don't know, laid the groundwork for, or laid the ground for, um, is the mass incarceration of undocumented immigrants. During the Obama administration, there were approximately 2,000 children in what are euphemistically called shelters, but are, in fact, detention spaces. So there were around 2,000 children. Uh, now there are 14,000 children. And the amount of contracts being made between the government and private industries just for 2020 to build more detention spaces for kids is is really worrying. Um, and that is a direction in which we're moving. And mass incarceration has become the new normal in, in, in the context of undocumented immigration. I do want to tease apart a decision you made because I think it is a decision that a lot of us who are both creative and and interested in being an advocate struggle with, which is you had this core idea about writing about this experience. And in some ways, because you had started Lost Children Archive as a fictional project, you stepped away from it to just do an actual, not like, as you say, like a place for all your political rage, Mm. right? That you couldn't muddle one project with the other. They actually needed to be two separate projects. Can you talk to me a little bit about that decision? Mm. Because I think that's a juncture people arrive at and don't know which way to go. So I think there's several important things I think there. Like one is that I cannot ever choose a form before I understand exactly what I am exploring. So I can never start a project saying this is going to be a novel with chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not, not only do I find that idea tremendously boring, uh, but also impossible because a form needs to grow out of exploring your content, your archive. When I had um, the idea for Lost Children Archive, the original idea was really just to write about how, how we tell the story of the world to our children and how they retell that story. It's it was the the core idea that the seed of the novel was really just about intergenerational storytelling. When I started working in court, um, six months later, perhaps um, six months after I had begun thinking and making notes for Lot Children Archive, I was listening to all these testimonies of children talking about radical violence, brutal violence on the part of the state, brutal violence on the part of criminal gangs, brutal violence on the part of Mexican authorities with which they had to uh, come into contact with when they were crossing Mexico, and then brutal institutional violence in the USA towards them, right? So it were these stories that I could not digest or or even, I, I, I could not keep them. Um, I had to do something. Um, so I would write them, write bits and pieces down when I got home, and they kind of became part of the novel until I said, whoa, 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 this is all wrong, right? I can't just 
translate what I'm hearing in court to a slightly different version of it and then call that fiction. What am I doing? I mean, it was not doing any justice to the novel. The novel was this muddle of voices and things. And But I was also not doing any justice to the situation by mm. trying to fix it into this n fictional narrative tissue and then what, right? What was I doing on both fronts? Nothing. So I stopped writing and I wrote Tell Me How It Ends. Um, a novel, a novel, I mean, tell me, I wrote Tell Me How It Ends, an essay which follows the logic of a screening questionnaire in court um, and was able to just offer a very straightforward snapshot of what was happening institutionally about the institutional violence exercised in the USA upon asylum-seeking children. And... It was only after I did that that I was able to go back to the novel and not think of it as a means to an end, not impose a form on it, not not impose it as a form on any material, but really just move ar around it in that world with much more freedom. So basically that was that was how the, how one project became two. And the reason why I think it could become two was that I had no fixed form yet. I, I just was exploring a set of questions and material, a set of angers and frustrations, and eventually I understood that 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 I needed two way, two two ways into similar to to the set of questions. Right? Did you know when you were writing Lost Children that it was going to hit the nerve that it did? I knew when I was writing. Lost Children Archive, that I was reaching a depth that I had not yet reached in my life with my work. Mm. Um, I could feel that, but I, that didn't mean that I, that I felt confident about the novel more generally. It just meant that while I was writing, I, I could feel something inside me that I was going and in, in, I was having to reach inside of me in because a different way. Because it was uncomfortable? Way. Because it was painful, because it was scary, because it was it moved fibers that I hadn't yet explored in me. Um, it did feel like wringing my my soul out at times, and there's always insecurity, there's always fear. Um, again, not modesty, but actual mm -hmm. fear, as Dorothea Lang says, right. Um, I knew that i I had gone deeper, and I was. And I was happy about that. Um, I needed to do that in my life. And, um, yeah. You needed to do it in your life or you needed to do it in your writing? Both. They're the same thing. You now live in a house run by women. Yes. <laughs> yes. Is that right? Your daughter, a niece. She definitely runs the house. Uh -huh. yes. How do these strong women influence each other and how do they influence you? Hmm, it's a beautiful question. I'm not sure how to answer it. I, I, I live in a house, indeed, with with wonderful women. Um, my One of my nieces recently gave birth in the house to my grandniece. So she's no longer living, this older niece is no longer living there because she's just had her baby, so she lives with her partner. But they come, they were coming and spending the weekend over, for example, she and the baby. There's four generations of women now. My mother moved in with me um, when I separated a couple, almost a couple of years ago. And my daughter, my niece who's 17 and, and I'm in the process of adopting, 
that other older niece used to live there. And then friends that get divorced or separate and then they come and, <laughs> and join for a while. Now I have a, a more, yeah, a friend who moved in more permanently as well. So, yeah, we're a, a house a house of all women and the dog Lola, who is, of course, also a woman. And my grandniece, luckily a niece, uh, no problem. We would have loved him if it had been a nephew, but we're very glad it's a niece. Um, there is a sense of solidarity there's a there's an uh, an essay in which Ursula Le Guin says, you know, men men's men or or male solidarity, um, and the institutions that have come uh, out of that kind of solidarity is all about vertical power, vertical structures. So, the church, universities, the military, um, every actually every institution that still runs our life. Um, Female solidarity, she says in that essay, is more fluid. Um, it's more about systems of um, of support and um, and a kind of solidarity that does not hinge upon this vertical structure. And I think that that has been an, an enormous discovery in our everyday lives and the way that we offer each other support and the way that we're there and therefore the the um, I don't know the much more healthy bonds between us because of because there isn't this constant power struggle but rather this this system of, of fluid solidarity poor husband may find his stuff on the curb tonight thank you <laughs> so much <laughs> I'm <Valeria>. so sorry. <laughs> like that sounds great <laughs> Valeria, thank you so much. Thank you so much. What a gift you are. Thank you. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lantigua Williams and me, Alicia Menendez. Cedric Wilson is our sound designer. Emma Forbes is our assistant producer. Manuela Bedoya is our intern. We love hearing from you. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. And remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you're listening. And please, please leave a review. It is one of the quickest and easiest ways to help us grow as a community. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.